Esther chapter 2, verses 5 through 23. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Hegai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Sheashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus, into the royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai, just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Tiresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the Book of Chronicles in the presence of the king.
Good morning and welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thanks for joining today if you're brand new uh, to, our, to our church. We're glad you're here especially. Welcome to all of you, of course, though, and all of you at home. Thanks for joining online. Uh, we are, as you probably guessed, we're starting a new series today in the book of Esther, the Old Testament book of Esther. We are going to spend four weeks in this book. It's a 10-chapter book. Many of you might know, so we're not going to preach or even read every word. Uh, but I encourage you to do that uh, this week sometime. If you uh, have the time, I encourage you to, to carve out some time and read through it. It won't take that long, actually. It's a pretty quick read. Uh, but to get the context to it and kind of just enjoy the story for what it is. It's, a, it's an amazing story, uh, just kind of at face value, uh, not even to mention the theology behind it, which makes it even better. So uh, looking forward to these four weeks. Today, I have a few introductory comments to make about the book and then some historical context that we'll set here. Um, I don't like to do a lot of that in these introductory sermons because it just takes too much time. But if you do want resources, I always say this, if you want resources, I can give you enough to read for about 10 years. So uh, let me know. I'd be happy to pass on uh, the, my, my favorite commentaries as well as some others I might recommend, uh, whether verse by verse or kind of uh, thematic commentaries. Uh, there, there are a lot of good ones out there that I've been consulting, but uh, otherwise that I just know of too. So I'd be happy to pass those on. Uh, but anyway, really excited to do this with you guys these next four weeks. As you just heard through the reading, uh, basically you've kind of heard a helpful setup what the story is essentially about. We started in chapter two. I will uh, recount chapter one here in a second. More, so more on all of that in a minute. But as with any story of the Bible, I just want to remind us, some of you, this will be brand new, that uh, Esther is not a story unto itself, but it's a story in the middle of the Old Testament. So it's a story on the heels of other stories. Stories come before this story, and so it pulls from them in some ways. But it's also a story that prepares the way for even better stories than this one. In other words, Esther is a forward-looking book, uh, like the whole Old Testament is in a way. So at times, even today then, we'll, we'll see how Esther resembles us. We will see our own stories and her story. But at other times, we'll see Jesus in her. And in other characters like the king, like Haggai, and like her cousin Mordecai, just to name a few, a few characters. And so that latter piece um, is, again, it might be a new thing to some of you. It's very important interpretationally, but it's often neglected in our approach to the Bible. I want to read from Kathleen Norris here, who I think is helpful, uh, especially as you think about Old Testament narrative. But she writes on the Benedictine monks, uh, so think like 1,500 years ago, roughly. Uh, they also lived past that. But uh, she writes about sort of their approach to the Bible, and, and she says, although their access to scholarly tools was primitive compared to what is available in our day, their method of biblical interpretation was in some ways more sophisticated and certainly more psychologically astute, meaning it was far less narcissistic than our own tends to be, in that their goal when reading Scripture was to see Christ in every verse and not a mere image of themselves. So their approach was, was not to read themselves into stories uh, unless uh, the Bible warranted that, but instead uh, primarily to see Jesus in every word, every verse, every section, every theme, as if he was the hero. And Esther's not an exception to that. We'll talk in a minute about how he's here quietly. God is here quietly in this book, but this is no exception. This is a book of the Bible. God wrote this book, and when God writes, he writes predominantly, primarily about himself. Uh, even though the, the, we're in this story, it's not really about us as much as it's for us. It's a gift for us on uh, the spirit of how the king gives gifts to his people at Esther's feast, which will come up a little bit later on here as well. But anyway, if that's all a little bit confusing to some of you, just hang with me. Uh, you'll see what I mean uh, by this as we go along today, but also in, in this series. 
Uh, But today we're going to talk about these three themes, divine coincidence, unmerited favor, and the fingerprints of Jesus from Esther 2, 5 to 23. So a little bit of historical context and setting here. This story takes place in ancient Persia in the 5th century BC and focuses on a remnant of Jews still in exile. So uh, this map might be kind of hard to read, but if you see like media and Persia right here, Susa is right here, the capital. Uh, here's, um, here's Babylon. Babylon. At this time, the Persians, uh, this is the Persian Empire, so they, they had sort of annexed and taken over all of this land to the Babylonians, but Jerusalem's right here. And so um, the, the context here, at least historically, essentially is a century before all of this happened, the Jews were carted off from Jerusalem from their land by the Babylonians, but now the Persians had power and sort of inherited these Jewish exiles from them. So they kind of inherited these Jewish um, exiles from the Babylonians, and so they're in the land, they're living there, um, and they are, you know, having their lives there. They're kind of intermarrying in some ways as well. Some of them are. And so it's just something they had sort of, um, you know, uh, gotten from the Babylonians. But one thing that you need to understand about the Old Testament is that this, this is actually, if you know nothing about the Old Testament, this is probably going to be really helpfully summative. But um, th- that is, among other things, it's the story of a nation of people who find themselves imprisoned by and oppressed by other people groups continually. It's a story of how their sin drives them away from God, but how God meets them in captivity and rescues them time and time again. Like, if you know that, just that alone, you have basically understood, you know, several, if not more, of the books of the Old Testament just on that theme alone. It's a story of a people group that finds themselves in captivity, oppressed by other people groups continually. God meets them in that captivity and rescues them by grace. That, that is the story of Tons of Old Testament books, including uh, the story of, of Esther. And it's important because it's really our story as well. John Piper says about Israel, Israel is the historical theater of the conscience of the world. Israel is the historical theater, the dramatization of every human being's experience with God who's ever lived. And so when you look at them, you're seeing your own story play out. You know, so they're... they're Issues or problems might differ from us on a physical level then, but our spiritual problems are identical to theirs. We are sinners. We are imprisoned and oppressed by sin and death, whether we realize it or not. We are separated from God and with no hope of escape at all. That is, until God does the impossible and saves us. So so Esther is another iteration in this pronounced redemptive motif in the biblical story. Esther is not alone. It pulls from those former stories of these types of things happening before this point in history, and it points ahead to how Jesus will complete this narrative on a spiritual level. So to go back then to chapter 1, which we did not read today, uh, just to summarize this in a few short points, uh, King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, uh, same, same name or same guy, King of Persia, throws a party. And that's a pretty big understatement. It says in verses 3 and 4, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all its officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media is there. The nobles, the governors, the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. So it's a six-month party. All right? And then in terms of like, uh, verses 8 say that there was an edict according to, uh, that instructed people on drinking, it said there's no compulsion. In verse 7-8, there's no compulsion 
For the king had given orders that all the staff of his palace were to do as each man desired. One commentator I read joked, now if you were watching a parade for 180 days, you'd probably want to get drunk too. Uh, so anyway, all that's going on. But, but at one point, it says that the king, quote, Mary with wine asked his wife, Queen Vashti, who was partying elsewhere with all the women, to come parade herself in front of all the drunken men. For again, quotes in verse 11, she was lovely to look at. The queen says, as you might expect, absolutely not. What's the matter with you? She, she denies him. She refuses. But the king um, gets extremely angry and is sort of thrown into a tirade. He gets advice from his cabinet to dethrone her as queen and get another woman to take her place. And this is where Esther enters uh, here. So this is where we get into today's passage in chapter 2. Esther is a Jew, so one of the Jews in captivity at this time, and is one of the women identified as a potential new queen, and quickly finds favor with Haggai, who was in charge of the candidate women, essentially. All right, so more on, more on why that's important here uh, in, in just a minute. But one thing you notice as you read Esther, some of you guys might be aware of this, uh, it's, Esther's kind of known for this uh, in some sense. It's not the main part of the book or the main thing going on, though I do want to talk about it today. Um, one thing you notice is that strangely, there's no mention of God anywhere in the book or really any other type of spiritual concept explicitly. Now, it's implicitly there, but explicitly you don't see any mention of God by name or really any other type of explicit spiritual idea anywhere in, in the book. But we also learn as we read, this was not a mistake. The author didn't forget to put his name. I mean, how do you actually forget to put God's name in, right, if you're, uh, if you're writing a book of the Bible? Uh, like, oh, shoot, I forgot to mention the most important being in the entire universe. Uh, but the author didn't forget. Uh, it, this is instead an intentional uh, literary device employed. And plus, this is divinely inspired literature, right? So this is God's book. But this is, this is an intentional divine uh, literary device placed uh, here in the book for us to you know, it's intended to lead us to look for the hidden hand of God quietly at work. So we should be asking the question, where is God? Well, we don't see his name, but he's clearly guiding all the circumstances to occur in a certain way uh, to get to this end of saving his people from, um, from, from this demise. I'll talk about that in a second. So I want to talk a little bit more about that this morning, and we will talk more about it as the series goes on because we can't piece all of it together today without me summarizing the entire story to you, which would take too much time. But we do see it start to come out. And so I want to talk about this idea first of providence, uh, which essentially just means, it's a theological word that means God's kind of loving, intentional involvement in everything under the sun, including everything in your life. So he's involved way more than we think he is. He's involved way more in weather patterns, uh, in the, the, the giving of different kinds of like natural, or of course supernatural, but like natural gifts to us like rain uh, or season change or, uh, you know, healings from different types of diseases that might be as small as a headache or things like that. But also in disasters. Esther is kind of a disastrous book in a lot of ways. It's not like this clean narrative. Uh, it's a very, very, very bad part of uh, the Jews' history. It is not a good time period for them. Uh, and yet God is using this for clearly a greater good that will become more clear as, as we go on. So like I said, we'll, we'll see this theme develop as we go about it. And as, um, as, as I encourage you guys to read the whole book this week, like I said, but even 
in the, the sermons we'll look at, you'll, uh, you'll see this. So keep it in the forefront of, of your mind. Um, but, but again, when you read Esther, there, there's these times where we're supposed to kind of pause and think, that is almost a ridiculous coincidence. That, that, that all, or kind of a series of ridiculous coincidences, you could say, that all had to happen in order, perfectly, for the Jewish people to end up being saved in the end. Not to wreck the ending, but that's kind of what this is about. It's about Esther being providentially put in place to have leverage so she might eventually talk to the king and help deliver the Jews from internal Persian hate. That's what the book's about. Esther getting in this place and becoming the new queen so she might have the leverage before the king to advocate for her people. The king does not know she's a Jew at this point and won't for a little while. But to advocate, and she, he wouldn't have married her if he did know this. That's why Mordecai's like, don't tell him that you're a Jew. Like, wait. And so uh, he falls in love with her, but then later on she has this leverage to, uh, to utilize. So more on that later. But, but here's a sample of what these, these coincidences, which aren't really coincidences, but all these had to happen in order perfectly for the end of the story to, to happen. And, and that is one, Vashti had to disobey the king and not parade herself in front of the men because otherwise she wouldn't have been dethroned as queen. Esther had to be Jewish. She couldn't have been Persian. She had to be Jewish, and she had to somehow gain favor with Haggai. Three, the king had to like her more than any other woman of the women. Then Mordecai, her cousin, had to just, ha- he just happened to be sitting at the king's gate and happened to overhear a plot to kill the king, which he ends up foiling so that he could later have the leverage needed to help foil another plot through Esther. To, then that plot was to annihilate the Jews uh, from, uh, from Persia. But, but again, we'll talk more about some of that in the coming weeks. But if, if any one of these things didn't happen in proper order, God's people would have eventually been completely and totally killed, totally annihilated from Persia. Men, women, kids, gone. And then so th- th- this is partly what it means then to see God quietly, providentially at work in uh, kind of behind the curtains of, of the story, quietly rather than loudly. And um, if you guys know the Bible, you know that God works in loud and quiet ways, right? Very loud, very explicit and in very, very quiet ways. I was talking to Julie before the service, and she was just recounting how Daniel's very different. Similar time period in history, but in Daniel, God is very loudly, clearly, explicitly working. In Esther, he's not mentioned one time. And so that's a great, that's a great comparison, because you see the Bible sort of show forth and hold forth this way of, uh, of God working, how it, it can be loud, it can be explicit, but a lot of times it's, um, it's an Esther-like way uh, of working. Uh, kind of a, a more of a modern-day example of this. I remember, some of you might remember this uh, as well, but I remember when 9-11 happened and the stories that came out immediately afterwards of people just saying, you know, I just happened to miss my flight and I never missed my flight or I would have been on that plane or I just happened to give up my seat last minute and I never do that, but I did today or I would have been on that flight or I decided to stay home with my sick kid um, rather than uh, having like a nanny there or something that day, rather than going to work in the World Trade Center. Or my bus just happened to be super late that day, and, and it never is, or I would have been on the top floor. I don't know if you guys remember those stories that came out. There are tons of articles that just sort of came out, filled the newspapers, I remember that. Um, 
in the weeks that followed 9-11 where, and the cra- that's pretty general, those things, but cra- crazy specific things that you're like, and these people were just kind of like crediting God, or, or if they weren't Christians, crediting like, you know, the universe or something, right? Just like, that, that, there's no way that just kind of like would have happened. Uh, but I remember like, I remember that kind of thing happening and thinking, that's very actually Esther-like. Or on a more personal note, maybe less of a life and death example here, but I, but I often think, like, through all the things that had to happen for me to meet my wife, Aletha, like, I just happened to decide to go to the U of M last minute after already being signed up for classes at UW-River Falls and not really knowing why I did it, but just kind of felt led to do it. I, I, she just happened to come to the U of M for her graduate program when she was from West Virginia and had no ties to Minnesota. Um, I just happened to decide in a gap year internship at my church, which kept me in the cities versus uh, other places I, would, I was considering moving and, um, and, of course, Aletha just happened to like a schmuck like me as well, which was not, not a guarantee. So, um, but, but, but anyway, and she, oh, she just happened to attend the church I was attending and join my community group. The, the list goes on. We're giving you, like, the, the bird's eye view. But um, if I stop and think, like, the, all the things that had to happen, and if one didn't, I never would have met her, I just, like, kind of freak out, you know, and think, dang, that, like, it, it just... Um, I was that close, and she was that close, and uh, it's, so anyway, looking back, of course, it's all God's direction, but it's not always easy for us to do this, right? You know, if if we have two things in the Bible, like Jesus healing a leper, and you have this simple phrase of Vashti rejecting the king's ask to parade herself before the drunken man at his party, those two events, and we think, you know, is God at work in both? Should our response to both be, look at what God is up to and doing? And in one sense, probably yes, it should be. But the splendor and the, the shape of miracles differ. And so it can be easy to not have that kind of like worshipful reaction to these circumstantial things happening in narratives uh, like we would say at um, a miraculous healing Jesus performs in Mark 1. All right, so on one level, then, I think here, uh, I'll put a cap on this for today. I want to come back to it uh, next week and beyond. But I, I think there's a lesson for us here as human beings because this book is, a, is about history. Esther really lived. Mordecai really lived. The Jews really were assimilated into Persian culture for a time before they were returned. All this really happened. So on one level, there's a lesson about God's providence for us here. That there's a lesson about how luck doesn't exist in the Christian worldview. There's no such thing as luck. Only a God who is much more involved in our lives than we think. And, you know, a lesson on how much we have to be thankful for. And, and if, if, in fact, God is guiding circumstances in our lives more than, more than we think he is. Even the terrible ones that serve a greater good outcome. And even, like, the things going on in our city right now. You know, if we really believe in God's providence behind difficult things, like using difficulty for good, um, it's really, really going to help our anxiety. It's going to give us a picture of God that's actually true and accurate, first of all, um, but also it's going to lead us to pray in a certain way, to trust him in a certain way, uh, to not feel like he's got his hands off the reins um, because things were a lot worse in Persia for the Jews than they are for us in Minneapolis, Minnesota in the year 2021. Way worse. They have it way worse than we do, uh, as bad as things are or can feel right now in our culture and in our city. All right, on another level, though, and I want to read this, On another level, there's a deeper truth to to all of this, and that is God orchestrating the events of Esther for the salvific 
the salvation-oriented good of the Jews, behind the curtain of their circumstances, not always tied directly to their intent or plans or works, is akin to God guiding our salvation for our spiritual good, apart from the works of our hands, apart from our intentions, which, of course, is the same thing as grace. All right, so another way to say this would be we are saved by his providential, gracious moving in our lives, not by our moralistic effort, or you could say it this way, um, or a question, maybe God wants to save you guys more than you want to be saved, because clearly that was happening for the Jews in Susa, right? They, weren't, they, they, they had no idea of what was going on, and yet God was intending to save them. It's like God wanted you to be, to sa- be saved before you were. That's the lesson here. God wanted you to be saved before you were actually saved. Is that the best thing you've ever heard in your life? The most consoling, the, most, the, the best foundation to build your life and your thoughts and your feelings off of? God loves you more than you love him. Uh, just like he did for the Jews here and through Esther. He is at work providentially. He's clearly working for the Jews' salvation in subversive and quiet and providential ways. Uh, I think to tie in our story, that's true for, uh, for, for us as well. And so... To lead that into this next section, um, sin and unmerited favor, um, I think I'm going to build off that idea and get more explicit by what I mean about this. Drilling into the person of Esther, because that was a very broad statement, what I, what I just kind of uh, said there. because that, that pertains not just to Esther and Mordecai, but to all the Jews. But in terms of like Esther, we see it under a microscope. We see it in a more um, microcosm kind of way. And one of the issues that arises when reading Esther then and I'll put this up here, moral ambiguity in Esther. One of the issues that arise in Esther is that there is a sense, a strong sense actually, of moral ambiguity to the book. So uh, by that I mean even the heroes of the story are not squeaky clean. Here's some questions to consider. Was Esther right to give herself away to the king like this? Was, and the king is clearly at fault, but was Esther right to give herself away or to allow herself to be taken as a new queen? Did she have a choice? Was was she coerced? Did she have a choice, though, uh, with Mordecai to pursue this or not? We don't know. But it seems at least, like, whatever you say, it's a form of adultery that she's committing. Uh, Or or should she have resisted more like Vashti? Look, Look at Queen Vashti. She resisted the king. Esther doesn't, right? So it's kind of this, like, moral squishiness here where you're kind of like, is Esther doing the right thing or or not? Or if your grid is feminism, Esther isn't exactly a role model here. She is submitting herself to an extremely patriarchal system and and practice here in terms of what it took to identify uh, a new new queen. And then there's Mordecai. Uh, He seems to be like almost worse. He's like guiding this whole thing and telling Esther to do this. Uh, And so you get this sense. We don't exactly know like where Esther was with all of it because we don't see her push back. But we do know that Mordecai is encouraging Esther into all of this. And he's supposed to be like the hero of the book right next to Esther. And so when we try to like force the book into some kind of moralistic lesson, we run into all kinds of problems, all kinds of problems that are not easily resolved. But a simple moralism is not the point to Esther. In fact, the moral ambiguity to the whole thing helps give way to a better truth behind verses like this, where it says, Esther pleased him and won his favor and 
Esther was winning favor, grace and favor, in the eyes of all who saw her. Like when you read, when you read verses like that and really take in how she's described and what she's doing, what she's being kind of thrust into here, uh, the follow-up question we have to ask is why? Why is she finding favor? Why is she chosen? We must ask these things to get theology right. Why is she chosen? Why is she winning favor in the eyes of all, all who saw her? And the answer is unclear. We don't know. And that's really, really, really good news because it's also not clear why you guys are favored by God. There's no answer to that question on a moralistic level. Like there's an answer to that question on a gospel level, but not an answer to that question on a moralistic level level. Just white space, just silence, just ambiguity. So it's good news because if there was an answer to that question, like if you could be clear, if you're like, well, I know God favors me because I did this or I abstained from this or I had this upbringing or I value these things or I'm articulate when it comes to this, you'd, then, then your salvation will be based on you and what you do, what you have to offer God. But that's not what's happening to Esther. She's favored for unclear reasons, just like you are favored for unclear reasons. And that leads us to this idea that God must just love us because he just loves us. Sort of like a parent, you know. If someone asked me why I love my kid, I'd say, I have no idea, I just do. Um, That's why God, if, if you had to explain to yourself or other people why you're chosen, favored, and loved by God, your answer should be, just because. I don't know, just because. Just because he loves me. That's why you're loved. Don't graduate from that, you guys. Don't move on from that. The rest of your life, that will be true. And into the new earth and eternity, that will gloriously be true uh, forever. First John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to the, prop- the propitiation for our sins. That's a big word. But it's an important word in theology because because propitious means favorable. So the idea here is that we have been made favorable to God through his son's death. We were not favorable to God before, but the way we become favorable to God is through the propitiatory, the favor-making sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We move from sinner and unfavorable to favorable and spotless because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the love he has for us in that. This is a very important concept and word to understand in theology. So in other words, it's not based on our own inherent worth, but the worth God ascribes to us through Jesus Christ. So so like, again, like Esther was favored just because, so are we favored just because, because God loves us through his son, Jesus Christ, and paid it all that we might be, might be saved. Another way to look at this, uh, I'm not going to read this again, but to, to go back, if, if King Ahasuerus is a picture of God, or if Haggai is, for that matter, and we are a picture of Esther, then this whole story becomes a picture of our redemption. Uh, Esther, if you remember, and I threw it up here, it's kind of an odd inclusion in the story in one sense, but she's prepared for 12 months, not through rigorous acts of piety, an ascetic devotion, but with spices and ointments, which, if you think about it, are things that are apart from her. 
They are objective to her. They are outside of her. In the same way, we are prepared for God's presence. We are welcomed back to him by the ointment of Christ's blood. Not something that comes from within you. Also notice that when she went before the king, uh, it clearly says that she could bring anything she wanted before the king, but it says she asked for nothing except what Haggai advised her to bring. So she basically went empty-handed. In fact, I think we can infer that the other women who, that the king considered probably did bring something. They went with something in their hands, but Esther didn't. But they were rejected, and she was accepted. And in the same way, we bring nothing before God in ourselves, but only what Jesus, the true and better Haggai, gives us and advises us with and prepares us to bring, which is to say himself, his own love and grace. To kind of tie a bow on this, I want to talk, keep talking about this because we're already talking about it, um, seeing the fingerprints of Jesus in this, in this section. I want to add a couple of things to this list and expand for today. We'll do more in the future weeks, but I want to do this because I want the what of having favor with our true king, Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, our creator. I want to follow that up with the how because there's still the question of how, and I, I've mentioned it. But the question is, where is Jesus here and how, how is he, if that's the question, how is he anticipated? To follow the Benedictine monk's interpretational approach, like how is Christ in every verse in Esther 2, I think the how just kind of starts to jump um, off the page. Now, we already talked about Haggai, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but Haggai in the, in the book is clearly a type of Christ. He is the preparer of Esther. Like Jesus prepares us to come before God, pure and covered and anointed by his blood. Revelation 21 talks about this when it says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Here's the word. Prepared as a bride, speaking of the church, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And so in the Bible, we see that as Christians, our preparation, our spotlessness, our purity is passive to us. It is we are prepared by somebody else, not by ourselves. You guys don't prepare yourselves as sinners to be before God. You are prepared by Jesus Christ. You are prepared by the ointment and spices of his blood, by Haggai's work, by the ultimate Haggai's work, Jesus Christ, not by, you, by what you have to give him. Isn't that amazing? You're saved by grace, not by works, in other words. That's what Esther is about. And so Haggai then is clearly a picture of Christ here for us. We are a, Esther's a picture of us. Haggai is a picture of Christ beforehand, setting the stage for the redemption that will be ours in the future and that we are in this side of now. But this is looking ahead. The second piece here is also we see his fingerprints maybe somewhat strangely in the two men, the, the would-be assassins who were hung on a pole or a tree. Um, some translations say gallows, but you may have a footnote in your ESV that says that Hebrew word is translated tree or pole as well. Uh, but this is, a re- this is a repeated theme in the Bible. Uh, if you think of Absalom, David's son, or the kings and Joshua, they were both hung up on trees. Um, uh, or the snake on the pole that Moses held up that Jesus likens himself to in John 3. This is a repeated theme because these stories set the stage for Jesus, who would be cursed 
by being hung on a tree uh, for us. Who would, as it says there in 2 Corinthians 5, become sin. Jesus is becoming like the two wicked assassins here in the Bible. Even though he knew no sin, he dies in a manner like them uh, to make way for our salvation. So I I would kind of like say it like this in, in an encapsulated way. I'd say, This is the way of salvation, the hanging of the Son of God on a pole outside the city, or associated with the salvation of the Jews in Esther was a tree-shaped execution. In fact, it happened first. Then downstream from it, the liberation and preserved life of God's people. But if it didn't happen, if Mordecai didn't expose the plan, which led to their cruciform-like cross-shaped deaths, then they would not have been saved. In the same way, if Jesus didn't die for you guys, there'd be no hope of salvation. There'd be no no liberation. There'd be no freedom from your sins. There'd be no coming back out of exile to go home to the Garden of Eden, to the ultimate Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven that Revelation 21 talks about. This is not a coincidence. The, the, The Old Testament is full of crucifixions. You might not realize that, but it is. Not called that, but deaths that are, that are like men hung on trees that, associate them, that are associated with the salvation of God's people. They all set the stage for the ultimate crucified one uh, who would come to truly, in this way, this is, just a, this is just a whisper and a glimpse, a shadow, but the reality is, uh, is Christ crucified. Then last I would say King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes also is a type of Christ in that he gave a great feast, he lifted taxes, and he gave gifts. Ephesians 2.18 says the king gave a great feast for all his officials and his servants. This is like the reception. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. All right, so here's what I think this means. Through his death and resurrection, his own pole hanging, Jesus welcomes us to God for a wedding feast, and he remits taxes, which is to say the new covenant does not require repayment to God. We are not rewarded based on the works of our hands, but on Jesus' nail-pierced ones alone. I I think what you see kind of encapsulated here in these couple of verses is a tale of two covenants. The Old Testament is kind of like a tax-based covenant. We owe God something to, to stay in covenant with him, Laws needed to be observed and kept. But in the New Testament, taxes are lifted. And I think uh, King Xerxes here is sort of uh, picturing a future time when the taxes of conditionalized moralism would be lifted. And now in its place, all we have is God pouring out gifts to us. That's, that is the covenant we're in. Uh, there, the, 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 in the gospel, there, is, there are no taxes. That's not, a, that's not a political statement, obviously. That's a theological one. But in the gospel, there are no taxes. It's not a two-way street. Uh, In the gospel, Jesus remits the taxes of the law and transitions us to a new way of grace or gift-centeredness. It's always one way, you guys. There is no future tax that you have to pay. There's no reciprocation back to God that you have to meet a level of to stay saved. That's what the Bible teaches in every genre, even here in Esther. We get a whisper of it. A time when the true king would lift taxes. And in Ephesians 4, 8, we see this. When Jesus ascended on high, he gave gifts uh, to his people. And, um, and I would just say, 
to those of you especially that are new to us, but to all of you. There's a reason the Bible paints the gospel in wedding reception imagery more than tax exaction imagery. In fact, they are at odds. Like the two covenants of the Bible in many ways are at odds. They're different. Um, You guys in Christ, if you're saved or if you're not yet, this is what the gospel is. But if you're a Christian, you are being given to every single day. God doesn't give you give to you once and then say, go and live a really good life so to kind of pay him back, reciprocate that back. Every day he's giving himself to you. And that becomes the source of your life and your holiness and your love and and your good deeds. And so there's a reason why this is the case. Uh, He does it more than we realize, as, as it says elsewhere. He who did not spare his one and only son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things. So Jesus changes the covenants, he changes the system, and King Xerxes is a picture of this, but he does it so that we can dance, we can have a feast with God, and not suffocate under, under unpayable taxes, which is to say the unkeepable law, but we're liberated. The, the, to be saved is simply to be saved by the grace of God, uh, not by what you do. And Esther is a beautiful, beautiful demonstration and dramatization of this reality, which we will not, we're not done with. We'll see this on repeat these next three weeks as well, but that's a taste for today. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for, uh, for how Jesus here is in every verse. Thank you for how the New Testament is anticipated. Thank you for the gospel uh, in the book of Esther, the unmerited favor, um, the, the open-handed um, non-answerableness to, to why she was favored, uh, ultimately, uh, to how empty-handed she went before the king, to how she was prepared by ointments and spices, things that were not her or from within, but instead things that came from outside of her, which is our story as well. Saved by Jesus who is outside of us, not us. Saved by his blood, not by our deeds of righteousness. Uh, and thank you all, ultimately, Christ, that Jesus, that you are um, you take on the darker components of this passage as well, being dying in, in a way that's a lot like these two would-be assassins. Um, it's a very, very dark thing. But Esther's dark, and you're darker. You take on the, the darker elements, not just of the passages themselves, but of our sin in our future, which is hell without you. And so we should, shouldn't be surprised by this, that you would, that you would um, associate in this way with lowly people like us in order to pull us back up and ascend above them all, I think like Dan prayed earlier. So um, thanks so much, God, for your grace. Uh, Just grow and bless our church qualitatively this week as we mull over these things and realize, man, um, we we are truly loved and truly saved. We are made favorable and loved, not by what we've done, but by the propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus Christ forever. In him we pray, amen.